I have this sign in my house. You see it right when you come out of the guest bathroom. I don't know why I put it there, but it's there. Uh, and it looks like this. Life begins at the edge of your comfort zone. That's a pretty safe statement for the book of Jonah. Jonah's whole problem was he just did not want to be out of his comfort zone in any way, shape, or form. Geographically, theologically, emotionally, he just did not want to be out of it. So, we are in the book of Jonah, right? And we all know that when you think of the book of Jonah, you think of this great big old fish story. And certainly that is prominent in the book of Jonah, but, but that's really a small part of the book of Jonah. It really is. If you look at it literally in the verses, it's a very small part of the book of Jonah. And, uh, and even then, that fish story is a vehicle to tell another story. And so we have to move beyond just this Jonah is the story of a guy that gets swallowed by a fish and see what's really there. And so that's kind of what we've been doing. Now, last week, we talked about some takeaways, and I'm going to run through those really quickly. Maybe this will prompt your head and kind of catch you up with where we were at. One takeaway, moments of crisis, it's instinctive to turn to God. Even people that don't believe in God will cry out to God if in a moment of crisis, and uh, that's an opportunity. God uses those as opportunities. He wants us to use those as opportunities. When someone in your life or in your neighborhood is going through a crisis, they are open, susceptible, if you will, to what God might be wanting to teach them, train them, guide them, lead them in. So you have to stay open to those. And it's interesting because most of us spend most of our life trying to avoid those moments. And yet those are the moments when we grow the most and others around us grow the most our big life change directions are in those moments. Those are the, the most productive moments for us, and yet we spend most of our lives trying to make sure that everything is calm, mundane, and serene. And yet when I look in Scripture, I don't see God working in the calm, mundane, and serene. He works in the chaotic and the threatening and the problematic. And, and so those are opportunities. Believers can become so complacent parentheses, or disobedient, that the lost will wind up doing things that the believer should do anyway. We all know instances of that. We can think of that. You see this really big in the book of Jonah, especially with the sailors, where Jonah the prophet, who should be crying out to God, goes to sleep, and they're crying out to God. When Jonah the prophet should be trying to save them, they're trying to save him. So, uh, we, we should not let somebody else take up the mantle we're supposed to be carrying. It's easy to say one thing about God and then live differently. But eventually that catches up with you. I could, I could tell you that I'm really into fitness, but that's going to catch up with me, right? Uh, and, and yet it's really easy to come on Sunday, say all the right God words, but then go home and live kind of however we want to. This is kind of what some of the book of Jonah is about. God is completely sovereign over everything, over weather, lots, over every element of creation. And, and that should bring us comfort. That should take some of the worry off of us. 
That should make us stress less, strain less, fret less. It doesn't because I'm not sure that we, we know in our head that God is sovereign, but I'm not sure that we actually believe it so much we're ready to surrender to that idea. Because if we did, I'm not saying life would be a walk in the park, but we would probably whistle more. All right? Understanding means nothing without submission. My kids, when they were little, could understand that I wanted them to clean their room. It meant nothing if they didn't do it. All right? When I was first married, I had this really awful habit. And I mean freshly married because this habit can't live long if you're married. Uh, I would come home from work and I would take off my dirty clothes and throw them on the floor right beside the hamper. I don't know why, uh, but my wife had to fix that really quickly. Yes, I didn't realize that was such a big deal until I got married. Um, But if I realized that was such a big deal and still kept throwing them on the floor beside the hamper, do I get any points for that? No, I get negative points for that. And so, understanding means nothing without submission. At times, it's easier to settle for less than to repent and obey. But it's not easier. It seems easier, but it's not easier. I'll just let that one lie there. This takeaway, if we refuse to worship God, give Him praise and honor that He deserves, He will rise up, raise up others to do that. And what a shame. We should be the ones doing that. One more takeaway, and then we'll start into tonight's study. The more you rebel against God, the further down you go. The further down you go, the more God turns up the heat. Sounds like a bad cycle. Sounds like a bad cycle. So, last week, we left Jonah treading water. He was treading water when we shut it down last week. And, and the way we've been going through this book is, is we've been reading a fictitious journal entry by Jonah. Something Jonah might have written if he was journaling about this whole experience. And we, we read that, and then we'll read the text that that might have come out of. And then we'll tear apart that text, and then we'll give you some takeaways. And then we'll move on to the next section. So tonight, here's the fictitious journal entry. Jonah might have written something like this. I guess I dozed off. I'm still exhausted from all that's happened. I ended my last entry with me treading water in the open sea and the ship disappearing from sight. I treaded water as long as I could. Then I tried to float. I guess I still didn't have the guts to just drown. I didn't know why God was dragging this out, but I knew that it was just about over. And then... I felt it. It pulled at my foot a time or two, as if it was just playing with me. And I yelled at the sky, isn't it enough that I'm going to drown? Now you're going to have me torn apart and eaten too? And then I and all the water around me were pulled into its cavernous mouth, into a vortex swirling rapidly like water going down a hole. And when it stopped, I was in one piece but wanting to die rather than face the horrors that would come next. But it didn't happen. 
found an air pocket in that cramped and foul and slimy prison. With seaweed wrapped around my head, I had reached the depths, emotionally and literally. And he still would not end it. And then I realized ending it wasn't his plan or his purpose. He wasn't dragging this out. I was. For the first time since all of this started, I prayed. And I mean really prayed. And I submitted. Truly submitted. And when I did that, there was a convulsing so violent that it sent me tumbling and twisting amongst the horrid muck. And I finally woke up on this beach. Let's look at the text where that might have come from. Book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. We'll start there. Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then... Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and he heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look, again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to make, take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. And I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. In your holy temple, those who pray, those who pay regard to vile, vain idols, excuse me, forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Okay, let's stop right there. Let's look at verse 17 for a minute. It says, the Lord Appointed. Actually, in the original text, it's more past tense than that. Had appointed a great fish. Why doesn't the scripture just say a great fish came and swallowed him? Why does it say the Lord had appointed? Hmm? The Lord's got to be given credit for doing this. Okay? It's his doing. So, so the writer wants you to know that this just, it wasn't, hey, it just so happened to be that there was a fish there, that this was strategic on God's part. This was orchestrated on God's part. He had planned this. This is part of the chess game that God is playing with Jonah to get him in the right place. So it's really, it's really important to, for us to know that he was assigned. This was not a simple twist of fate. The question is, is that true for everything or just for the big things? I wonder. Is that true for everything or just for the big things? You think it's true for everything? 
Does that mean that when you're in Walmart parking lot and a parking space opens up right up near the front, God did that? I have no idea. I'm just asking the question, actually. <laughs> and when he doesn't open it up, he doesn't. Yeah. Uh, I think that's important to ask yourself. If God is sovereign, is he sovereign over everything or just the big things? You know? Uh, I was, uh, I was a, an associate pastor and student pastor in West Texas while I worked in the oil field at the same time. So it was a very busy time. And my students kept asking me to come with them on Sunday and play basketball. Now, those of you that know me, I have, like, zero athletic ability. I mean, none. My dad was so worried about me when I was a young kid because I just wanted to stay in and draw and listen to music, and I think that freaked him out a lot. So he demanded that I be on the basketball team in eighth grade. And the very first time they put me on the court, within five minutes I had fallen and broken my arm. So no athletic ability whatsoever. But my students have been after me forever and ever to come play basketball with them. So Sunday afternoon, we lived in the parsonage right beside the church, and there was a gym in the church. And so Sunday afternoon after lunch, I headed out the door to go play basketball. And my wife said, I want you to remember, you're not a young man anymore. And I went, yeah, yeah. 20 minutes later, my students are carrying me back into the house. I'd fractured my ankle. And uh, put me off of work for like a month. And it just seemed really inconvenient. And it seemed like there was really no practical purpose to that at all. But it was at that time God said, you know what? Now that I've got your attention and you've got time to just sit and listen because you can't go anywhere else, let's talk about some things. And I wound up quitting my job and going to seminary. But it was like he had to put me on my back first so that I would look up and listen. It sounds kind of weird to say God broke my leg. But I think he did, actually. Uh, I really do believe God is sovereign. Now, that doesn't mean I go around praying to God to open up parking spaces for me. Uh, but the purpose of the text saying, and the Lord appointed a great fish, is to let you know that this is God's doing. It didn't just happen. And I believe that God is sovereign enough that even happenstance, he orchestrates and aligns. I can't play chess. I'm not a good chess player. I can't think that far ahead. God thought this far ahead before there was an Adam and Eve. So we can probably trust him more than we do. And when stuff that happens is stuff that happens that we don't want to happen, when that occurs, we can probably rest a little bit more in that than we do. I remember uh, when my daughter was around seven years old, something like that, we were in Fort Worth going to seminary, and we were out one night, and uh, and she was perfectly fine one minute, and two minutes later, she was gray and blue and couldn't breathe, and she was having a severe asthma attack. And, uh, and we happened to be 
relatively close to the children's hospital, so my wife got behind the wheel, I got in the back with her, and I'm holding on to her, and she's clawing glass to try to breathe, and, 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 and what air she can get, she's saying, God help me, God help me, and we get to the emergency room, and I can't hold her and get out, so I have to get out first, and when I reach back in, she was gone. I mean, she was in respiratory arrest. She was gone, limp as a rag. And so I snatched her up, and we run her into the emergency room, and they grab her, and they throw her on the table, and they start bagging her and, and everything, and, uh, and we walk out. We, we were told we had to leave, actually. And so you can imagine how, how worried and fretful we were. And, uh, and so later that evening in ER, when they had stabilized her and got her breathing again, had chest tubes in her and the whole nine yards, I'm kind of sitting there at 3 in the morning or something like that. And uh, one of the ER docs comes in. And he said, uh, can I talk to you for a minute? And it's like, well, there's really nothing else to do at 3 o'clock in the morning in the ER. So, yeah. And he said... I have a question to ask you. When you brought your daughter in, she was in really, really bad shape. I said, yeah, I kind of felt that way. He said, I don't see many of them that are in quite that bad a shape. And he said, uh, but you seem to be relatively calm. And he said, I'd really like to ask you why. And uh, I said, well, I said, I don't know what you'll think about this, but before this child was born, her, her mom and I basically said, this child belongs to God. Whatever God wants to do with her, she's his. I used to think what that meant was she would grow up to be this missionary or, or do these great and wonderful things for God. And I said, I realized tonight what it meant was if God wanted her, he could have her. And, uh, and he said, I wondered if it was something like that. And he wound up being a Buddhist priest who was also a physician. We had this great conversation. Now, I, I don't want to go so far as to tell you God almost killed my daughter so I could have a conversation with this man, uh, but I think that's how sovereign he is. And, and I think we spend so much time trying to control and orchestrate and navigate stuff ourselves that we forget that it's already orchestrated. We just need to go along with the music. I have no idea why I got on such a soapbox on that thing there. We're only like, what, three words into this verse? Four words. So let's move on. How about it? Okay, so, so God appoints this fish. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this fish. We, we know it's great. That word great is used a lot in, in, Jonah, in the book of Jonah. It talks about Nineveh being a great city and, and their sin being, wickedness being great, and the fish is great. So, so that word is used a lot in Jonah. And it's not a whale. We don't know what it is. You know, we always think of Jonah and the whale, but it doesn't say that. It says Jonah and the fish. It's a, just a very generic name for fish. And it says that it swallows Jonah. That word swallow means to engulf, to consume, to bring to a state of ruin. You can find that word in Hosea 8.8. 8. Let me see if I can grab that really quickly. Hosea 8.8 8 uses that word. Um, and we were in Hosea probably three years ago quickly as we're running through it. Hosea. And, and speaking of Israel, I guess eight comes after seven. 
It says, Israel is swallowed up. It's the same word that's used for Jonah being swallowed by the fish. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. So basically, Jonah is engulfed. He's swallowed up. He's consumed by this fish. Just a little side note. How many of us have things in life that are just swallowing us up? They're absolutely consuming us. They're engulfing us. We can't see anything else but those things. And this is part of what we need to know about Jonah. And this is another reason why Jonah is not a straight allegory. Because in, in uh, Hosea, Israel is the one who's being swallowed up. But it's different with Jonah. And so, all of us get swallowed up by stuff. Jonah did too. So let's see what happens. Staying in verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Three days and three nights. The obvious association is with what? Hmm? Jesus. Exactly, Jesus. Look at Matthew 12, 40. You know, we talked about when we opened this study that Jonah is one of the four prophets that Jesus refers to. Matthew chapter 12. And that Jesus refers to Jonah as if he's a real historical figure. Uh, Matthew 12, look at verse 40. Jesus says this, For as just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, Jesus is referring to Jonah. He's making the connection. Notice Jonah was written first. So much in the Old Testament is really a taste, a foretaste, if you will, of things to come with Jesus. And this is one of those foretastes. Uh, all right, so you get down here, and it says, He swallowed up in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2, verse 1. First word, then. It's a really an important word. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Then he prayed. It took being swallowed by a fish and taken to the bottom of the sea to get his attention. Isn't that amazing? I mean, he runs from God. He's hiding in the bottom of the ship. This great storm comes. He's threatened to be killed. He finally has, It takes being swallowed by a fish and hauled to the bottom of the ocean for Jonah to wake up. What does that tell you? Yeah, some people have to hit bottom. And bottom is different for everybody. Bottom is way different for everybody. But Jonah had to hit bottom. It also tells you how intense his anger and hatred was for the Ninevites. Jonah would rather get thrown overboard, drowned, or be swallowed by a fish 
rather than go to the Ninevites and preach that they might repent. That's how intense his hatred is for them. I don't know if you have anybody in your life that you feel even a little bit of that for, but that stuff will consume you till you don't make good decisions. I work, some of you know, I work a lot with ladies who have been sexually abused in their past as children and, and, and as teens, and that hatred for their abuser can sometimes consume them so much that they will make poor decisions rather than good decisions because they're just consumed, understandably so, but they're consumed by hatred, consumed by resentment, consumed by how they were hurt. Maybe someone's hurt you so badly that you're just consumed by it. You think about it all the time. It, It takes up rental space in your head and in your heart. And this was Jonah's deal. And so that, that one word, verse 1 of chapter 2, then Jonah prayed. Now he prays out of fear of dying, and then eventually he winds up praying out of gratitude. And, and the form of his prayer is a lot like a psalm. It's a lot like some of the psalms were. Now, notice he prayed this in the fish, But he didn't record this in the fish, right? So what you're reading here is is after he's out. He's he's looking back. I I know that sounds silly to say. I mean, it kind of goes without saying. But sometimes we read Scripture like, okay, we're reading it right when it happened. No, you're not. You're reading Jonah's account of it after he spit up on the land later on and looking back on things. And so... He, set, he starts off his prayer once he's on land. And it says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And then listen to the compliment. It's a little form of poetry here. The psalm is, I called out to the Lord. He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, which is a place of separation, a place of darkness. We often associate it with hell. It's not quite the same thing. Hell's a Greek term. Sheol's a Hebrew term. But out of Sheol, I cried. Here's the flip side. And you heard my voice. So twice now, you're, you're hearing this. I cried, he heard. I cried, he heard. It's really important for us to let that sink in. Because you may be way more spiritual than I am, but there's a lot of times when I cry out to God or I pray and I wonder if he's really listening. Or my prayers seem to bounce off the ceiling. Or I wonder if I'm even praying the right thing. We talked about that some on Sunday. But, but this psalm, this pray, prayer, if you will, Jonah keeps saying, after everything I did when I crawled out, he still heard. He still listened. Goes on verse 3. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. What's he doing? Yeah. I don't know whether he's blaming God or just saying, hey, this is your doing. You, you did this. This is calculated on your part. And, and then it goes on to say, then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Okay. 
So the first part, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. He answered me out of the belly Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice. That's like a summary of everything that happened. So he starts with this summary. This is what happened. I cried out, you heard me. I cried out, you answered me. And then he goes into detail. You cast me into the deep. Your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your side. He's just casting me completely away. Yet, I shall look again on your holy temple. I wonder when he got that revelation. I wonder if he felt that way in the fish while he was praying. Or if that's something that came after. I kind of think this is, a, this is kind of an addendum. He was writing this after he was out of the fish. I kind of wonder if this is an addendum. Because he didn't know that until the fish unloaded him. Yet I shall look again on your holy temple. And then he goes back. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And then again it says, yet you brought up my life from the pit. So you hear that poetry we talked about in some other books we've studied. It's this happened, this happened, this happened, but you did this and this and this. This happened, this happened, this happened, but you did this and this. And all through the book of Jonah, you see this downward trajectory. God calls him to go to Nineveh. He goes down to Joppa. When he gets to Joppa, he goes down to the harbor. When he gets to the harbor, he goes down onto a ship. When he gets on the ship, he goes down into the cargo hold. Then they throw him overboard, and he goes down to the hearts of the mountain. He's on this trajectory. And God just sticks with him, just stays with him, keeps pulling him the other direction. He keeps pulling. And here in this prayer, you get a hint that Jonah might change trajectories in this prayer. And then he gets down to, yet you brought me up. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. That's interesting. This, this verse is really interesting. The verse right before it, yet you brought me up my life. You brought up my life from the pit. That's talking about his physical life. I was, I was in the bottom, in the belly of the fish at the bottom of the sea, and you actually brought my physical life back to light. But the next verse, 7, when my life was fainting away, it's talking about his hope, his attitude. When his attitude was fainting away, it says, I remembered the Lord. Now, here's an interesting thing. It's not like he suddenly woke up and went, oh, yeah, there's a God. I forgot all about him. Like break glass in case of a fire, that kind of thing. That's not what that word remember means. That word remember means all of a sudden I realized who he is. That word remember means to mention, to make known, to profess. It even is used to, to mean praise. Finally, Jonah gets an idea of who re God really is, and he starts confessing that. He doesn't just suddenly remember that there is a God. He suddenly remembers who God really is. And then all of a sudden, things start to turn for him when that. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. And then he gets, I don't know, but to me it sounds a little cocky. If you want to know the truth. 
Because it says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Well, this is just, this is the guy that just ran away from God and said, I don't want to do what you want me to do. Right? And it was the idol worshipers that tried to save his life. So all of a sudden, it's kind of weird that Jonah starts spinning things in this direction. Verse 9, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What do you think it is he vowed? That he would go to them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if this is what it takes, yep, I'll do it. I'll, I'll change my mind. I'll do it. You know. Have you ever had kids where you threatened them within an inch of their life and they were going to, all the wrath was coming down on them if they didn't do what they were told to do and then they finally said, okay, I'll do it. You know, this is where Jonah's at. Uh, and so he vows that he's going to do that. <clears throat> and it says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah makes this great big proclamation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What's ironic about that? What was he told to do? He was told to go to his worst nightmare enemy and tell them that basically if you don't turn and repent, then God's going to bring your destruction. And Jonah feared that they would repent and not be destroyed. And so he didn't want them saved. And so he takes it upon himself to see if he can do something to circumvent that salvation. And this is the guy who is saying, salvation belongs to who? The Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah got that for Jonah. God just saved me when I didn't deserve to be saved. I was in the pits. I was running from him. I was rebellious. I was all these things. And yet salvation belongs to the Lord and he saved me. But Jonah could not get it in his head that that applies to the Ninevites too. I mean, we all love it when God works in our behalf. We all hate it when he works on behalf of our enemies. You know? We love it when we get the promotion, but we hate it when the guy we think least deserves it gets the promotion. We, we have trouble operating in grace, and Jonah was having all this trouble operating in grace. Now, here's some things of interest up to this point, and then we'll do a few takeaways. Some things of interest. This really parallel, parallels the resurrection of Christ, if you really think about it. Okay, Jonah's the three days and three nights things. Jonah's in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. Christ is in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. Jonah says, I am driven away from your sight. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which comes from Psalm 22. What appeared to be a horrible, horrible event was actually a means of salvation for Jonah and the Ninevites. I used to think that when Jonah got swallowed by the fish, it was punishment. No, it was a free submarine ride back to shore that he couldn't have gotten there if any other way. It was an act of salvation. And so what appeared to be just this awful event was actually salvation. What appeared to be an awful event for Christ on the cross was actually a method and a means 
of our salvation. So it's another parallel. And now, in a little bit, Jonah basically comes back from the dead and goes to a group of people and says, repent. And Jesus comes back from the dead and says, repent. So all kinds of parallels here. Now here's the interesting thing about all of this we've just read. Jonah prays. Jonah admits that he was on the wrong track. Jonah agrees that God gives salvation. He agrees to pay what he had vowed to God. But nowhere in there does he repent. That's what's missing in all of this is confession and repentance. You never hear Jonah say, I sinned, I rebelled, I turned away from you, I ran the opposite direction. You don't, he doesn't say that. You don't hear Jonah confessing his sin or repenting of his sin. You hear Jonah acknowledging who God is and being very grateful to be saved. But you don't hear Jonah say any of that other stuff, which doesn't seem like much right now, but it'll seem like a lot when we get to chapter 4. So let's do a few takeaways. I am so behind here. We've done the text. First takeaway, the sooner you turn to God, the better. Will God force you? No. Will he let you run long, hard, and far? Yep. But the sooner you turn, the better off you are. My, uh, my son-in-law, or my granddaughter, decided there were some things in school that, you know, she really just didn't need to pay attention to. You know how that is. You know, there are people in life who follow the rules, and then there are people in life who think that the rules are just meant for those who can't figure things out for themselves, right? And uh, so, she, so she's having trouble in school, and so, of course, she's on restriction. She's on restriction from electronics and, and all other kind of things. But what was brilliant was my son-in-law, who I think is a way better dad than I am, uh, basically told her, and every time you complain about it, we're adding another day. I think that's brilliant. That's brilliant. I wish I'd thought of that. I could save a lot of waning and complaining when I was raising my children. Uh, and basically, it's this, you know, the, the quicker you turn, the better, is kind of what he's getting across there. So the sooner you turn to God, the better off you are. If there is no other way, God will cause us to hit bottom to force us to look up to him. I don't think it's his primary method, and I don't think it, he relishes in it. I think he would rather have this happen some other way. I mean, none of you raising kids say, have said, boy, I hope they mess up so I can spank them. I hope I'm, they mess up so I can make their life miserable. No, we all wish they would get it right because it would save them and save us. But God's really more interested in our character than he is our comfort. I honestly believe that. And so if he has to, he'll pull out whatever stop he has to pull out to get our attention. Not to, to punish us, but to turn us. Another takeaway. Sometimes something that appears to be awful is actually a tool of God's mercy and grace. It really is. You know, like I said, the fish was not something that was meant to be punishment. It was a way to get him back to shore. 
you know. Now, granted, it might not have been first-class trip, but it got him back to shore. How many things in your life in the moment you thought were awful and terrible, but now when you look back on them in hindsight, you go, yeah, I know why that was important. If it hadn't been for that, this and this and this wouldn't have happened. And you find out it wasn't as bad as you thought then. There's so many things in my life that in the moment I thought were terrible, terrible crises. And now, at this stage in the game, I look back and they're just stories. They're just stories I tell. And uh, they don't seem near as bad now. And uh, I, I talk to parents and I talk to spouses and, and uh, they tell me about things they think are just awful. And they're really just kind of quite normal. They just seem awful when you're in them. Yes? I comment, uh, you never saw anything about Jonah saying he repented. Mm-hmm. He repented by his actions. Well, yes, you would think that until you get further in in the book. And when you get, yeah, when you get further in the book, you find out that Jonah hadn't really changed. He just did what he had to because he had to. Yes? Yeah, and, and, and we have to be very careful of reading the Old Testament in New Testament terms, you know, because the idea of salvation is very different in the Old Testament than it was in the New Testament. And so salvation is from the Lord is, is you know, if, God, if, if we're going to be saved from anything, whether it's an impeding army, whether it's a fish, whether it's our own sin, whether it's going to have to come from God. So, there's that little takeaway. When you run from God, he focuses on getting you back, not getting back at you. That's really important for us to get because we think when something bad happens, especially if we know that we probably caused it, we think, is God getting back at us? No, he's really trying to just get you back. We are much more interested in keeping score than God is. I really do believe that. I mean, if Christ died for my sin and when I give my life to Christ, my sin is forgiven. That's past, present, and future. I mean, he's already wiped out the scorecard. He's not interested in keeping score. He's interested in keeping me on the right track. He's not interested in keeping score. He's already wiped out the math in Christ doesn't mean that we get to do whatever we want to but what it means is when things get tough and if he brings them on or we bring them on the purpose is to bring us back not to keep score and get back at us does that make sense some of you look like I don't know about that yeah. look like it might have made you a little uneasy alright what time is it let's try one more passage of text and then we will call it a night. Let's look at this journal entry, or fictitious journal entry. I don't want you to think Jonah left a journal for us to read, but in a way he did. I'm on my way to the city, just as he originally told me. I thought that maybe it would be forgotten in the midst of all the other events, but it wasn't. You ever thought that as a kid? Hey, 
They haven't said anything about it. Maybe they just forgot about it. (laughs) Nah, it wasn't. The words were the exact same words. The command was the exact same command. It's been a very, very, very long journey. But now I can see the city in the distance. It's bigger than I imagined. How will I do this? How will they respond? What am I doing? Let's look at the text. Chapter 3. I guess we skipped over chapter or verse 10 of chapter 2, and it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. I like that much better than the, is it the King James that says it spit him out? One of the versions, it sounds much more clean in, in one of the versions. But the word really is vomit, to hurl, you know. If you've had the stomach bug, you understand this right here. And, and so Jonah comes out. And, and he's a mess. I mean, you get swallowed by a fish, you stay in there for a day and a half, two days, three days. Yeah, you're, you're kind of a ghastly sight when you come out of there. And so, chapter 3, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord, there's that word again, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This time it says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Which would have been a whole lot better if he had done that in the beginning. But, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. An exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Because I don't want to get into too much other stuff. But, let's take apart this text real quickly. So the call comes a second time. It's the exact same call. God didn't forget. He didn't change his mind. The call is the same. The response is a little different. We'll get to that in a minute. And I kind of wonder if this is not a dig. You know, Scripture could have just said, God came to Jonah and said, Arise, go to Nineveh. But it says, God came to Jonah a second time. I think that's kind of a uh, uh, kind of dig. And uh, the words are the same. So he's to go to Nineveh. Now, remember, we've talked about Nineveh. Nineveh was the second largest city in Assyria, uh, next to Babylon. Okay, so it's like Babylon is like Atlanta. Nineveh is like Augusta. And so this is a big place. Now, we don't know exactly how big. It's the largest known city next to Babylon. We know that the inner walls were like 100 foot high and 50 feet wide. We know that from some archaeology. And that there was an inner wall and that there was an outer wall around that. So it was heavily fortified. I mean, it was kind of a Fort Knox type of a city. Uh, Now, it says that Jonah, this is where it gets a little confusing. It talks about Jonah. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Which makes it sound like if, if Nineveh was kind of long, to go across it would take you three days. But I don't think that's what Scripture is talking about. Because one, that would, the city wouldn't have been that large. And archaeology doesn't pan that out. But it was about 550 miles to get to Nineveh. Okay, so if you want to put that in perspective, it's like the distance between here and Memphis. Yeah, we think he just walked for a few days and boom, I'm there. 
right? So this is a guy that just gets ejected from a fish, has already been ghastly devoured, his clothes somewhat by the gases in the fish, and now he's going to walk 550 miles to Nineveh, which means it would have been a whole lot easier if he'd have done it to start with. So it's always harder to obey after the fact. But, but he goes to Nineveh. It's great in terms of its wickedness. It's great in terms of its size, whether we realize how big it was or not. This is where he's going. And on top of all of that, these are the arch enemies of Jonah's people. And we've talked earlier about how ruthless the Ninevites were. I mean, pulling out tongues, running stakes through tongues, burying people up to their neck until they went mad. They, they had perfected the art of persecuting and torturing their enemies. And so... The enemy, Jonah, is going to walk right in there like he owns the place and say, hey, God's going to come and destroy you in so many days. So this was, a, and on top of the fish ride and walking the 550 miles, this was, this was a big ask on God's part. It was a big ask, okay? But his response is different this time, and he goes. So let's do a few takeaways, and we'll just end it there tonight. I'm going to give you two takeaways out of that short little passage. God is gracious and merciful, offering us another chance, even when we don't deserve it. Jonah did not deserve the second chance. But here's the deal. None of us deserve the second chance. None of us deserve the second chance. We might think we're pretty good, but none of us do. Your sin might be bigger than mine. Mine might be bigger than yours, but it doesn't make any difference. None of us deserve the second chance. And... And despite Jonah basically thumbing his nose at God and saying, forget you and do what I want. I don't care what you want me to do. God still gives him a second chance. Now, I don't think that behooves us to try to wear him out on second chances. Right? But he was so extremely patient and went so far out of his way with Jonah. And you're going to see this later, why this is such a, so important. But he does that with us all the time. Every day. Every day I get up and I go for about an hour, hour and a half walk. And I always start that walk with all of the good things I have, I am undeserving of. I don't deserve a single blessing. And that's not trying to beat myself up. That's just reality. That's just how it is. You know, your children. If you stop and think about how much energy you put into them, how much money you spend on them, how much grief you go through for them, and then, if you think about how much they pay you back for that, there is no return on your investment. All right? That's a bad investment. If, if you, literally, if you stop and think about it, that's just a bad investment. So why do you do it? Why are you patient with them? Why is it when they look at you and you know they're lying through your teeth, you don't just bust them and kick them to the curb? Why is it you're so tolerant with them? Tell me. 
It's called love. Four little word called love, right? Four. Yeah, sometimes. But you're not loving them because of what they're doing for you. Because they're not doing anything for you at that stage. You're loving them because they're yours and you want the best for them. Even when they don't want the best for them. This is exactly what God was doing for Jonah. And this is exactly what God was wanting to do for the Ninevites. So, let's see if we can put it in terms that we can get. Uh, (laughs) I don't like this, but it's true. God loves me, but God loves the leader of North Korea just as much as he loves me. Yeah, I heard somebody groan over that one. Yeah. This would be what it would have been like for Jonah. Jonah would have had to comprehend that he, one of God's people, an Israelite, a Hebrew, was not loved any more by God than the Ninevites were. Because this patience and this mercy and this graciousness extends to all. Not all receive it, or accept it rather, but it extends to all. And this was what Jonah was struggling with. You better get off of that soapbox. One more takeaway, and then we'll go home. Though God offers us another chance, the requirement for obedience is still the same. That doesn't change. God offers Jonah a second chance, and yet he was required to do the exact same thing he was told to in the first place. You ever had your kids come and try to make up with you? I love you, Mom. Okay. But you still have to do what I told you to do. What? You know, second chances doesn't mean that we get to bypass obedience. We know this. We know this in our life and relationship with kids and family and friends and spouses and everyone else. But somehow or another, we think that God is easier. And he's not. Now, does God just get off on making us obey? Did you just get off on making your children obey? Did you just love the power struggle and the, and the power play and to say, you know, I'm the mom up here, ha, 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 you have to obey. Is that how you parented? Some of you might have, so don't tell me if you did. But somehow or another, we want to attribute that to God. And Jonah is a book about God's mercy and graciousness to people who don't deserve it, including Jonah and including the Ninevites. The difference is the response of people. To whom much is... Though, no, I'm, I'm, I'm misquoting. Those who have been forgiven much love much. That's a paraphrase. Pardon? Now, I'm thinking about uh, the woman who comes and breaks the alabaster jar over Jesus. And basically, the point Jesus is making is, if you know how much you've been forgiven, you tend to love much. Okay? And the difference between Jonah and the Ninevites are they they were both forgiven pretty much of the same junk. But they responded to that forgiveness very differently. All right. I've talked until I'm tired of hearing me. You talk. What, what strikes you out of all of this? 
stands out, what rattles your cage. If something doesn't rattle your cage, I'm going to feel like I failed. Yes? Oh, that's a great word. If you don't get in the habit of praying for everything, you'll end up praying for nothing. That's a good point. It's a really good point. Yes? I think that's excellent point. I think your point is, is this, that there's a difference between looking at what God might do to you versus what God has already done for you. And that when you, like you said, when you look at what God has already done for you, how can you not be more in love with him? How, how can we... I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but some of you in this room see the negative much faster than you see the positive. And that takes you down one way. If you focus on a God that's all about rules and forcing you to do this and forcing you to do that, you're going to see God one way. But if you see God like you're talking about on the cross for us, shedding his own blood for us, then you're, you're looking more at what God's done for us Right, right. The greatest consequence of our sin is when we, is the separation we wind up feeling from God. I mean, that's what you're talking about is feeling close. And, and you know, it's much more of a punishment for us to, to stretch that relationship and distance that relationship than anything else that could happen to us. You know, I told you Sunday morning that my dad died when I was 18 and we never got to resolve a lot of conflict that he and I went through and because we were so totally different, we went through a lot of conflict. I would love to be able to close that gap. And I can't do it. I wonder if it feels the same way for the Heavenly Father. Someone else. What bothers you about the book of Jonah? Anything? Nobody's got any problem with the book of Jonah. I'm feeling really pagan right now. He was just so determined not to do what God warned him to do. Yeah. Have you ever seen somebody so entrenched in their anger and their hatred that it didn't make any difference what you said to them? It didn't make any difference. Yeah. And none of us want to raise our hand and say, I've been there, done that. But we've all probably skated close to that. All right, anybody else? All right, we'll pick it up next. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Will. Uh, God is sovereign 
Yeah, yeah, completely sovereign over believers and unbelievers. You know, and we're raised in such a me generation, I should have my rights generation and everything else, that that kind of tweaks us a little bit to think that God can do whatever he wants to do. He should do what's best for me. I mean, if he loves me, he should do what's best for me, which means it should feel good, and it should be what I want, and it should be how I want it, and when I want it, and that's all so totally bogus. Yep. All right, so next week we'll pick up Jonah as he goes into the city and what happens from there, and I'll make this very optimistic prediction that we'll finish Book of Jonah next week. And those of you that are laughing know me well, right? All right, let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for this book. I'm grateful for these people. And Father, there is so much in this book that we need to get because whether we like to admit it or not, we can be so much like Jonah. We really can. And we may dress it up a little prettier and it may not be quite as dramatic, but, but that is within all of us. And... Uh, Yes, Jonah is a picture of the nation of Israel, but it's a picture of us too. And help us to, to pull off something this evening, to hang on to something this evening that you're telling us applies to us and make a change, make a tweak in our life. Oh. Father, Jonah heard your word and walked away and did whatever he wanted to. Please help us not to hear your word this evening and then walk out the doors and just be like we always were tweak something in us from what we've studied, change something in us from what we've studied so that we can know what it's like to move towards you rather than away from you. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 